This is West Coast Project and our podcast for Fargo TV, episode 410, entitled Happy. We're fortunate enough this week to have a sit-in guest, Sarah Fields of Telltale TV. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. I'm glad you're here because Michelle is out this week. She's working on a big Thanksgiving uh, meal with her family, and uh, she's not able to jump in this week, but your, your being here with us really helps. Happy to be here, and I appreciate being asked. So um, we did a little uh, second take here because I forgot to hit the record button. So I hope you don't. I hope you'll indulge me again. I asked about your uh, project with Telltale TV, and if you're able to pick the things you cover, and yeah. you're going through that description, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us again how you got involved with Fargo? Yeah. So I'm a staff writer for Telltale. I've been with them close to two and a half years, um, and we. We can request um, shows that we're interested in. We don't always get the ones that we want, but we're never asked to review things that we aren't interested in. So I was just sort of looking for something to do, something that I found interesting because with all the delays with the other shows, um, there wasn't most of the shows I normally would review weren't on. And I'd never seen Fargo before. I've heard of it. I know what it is, but I'd never seen it. And I saw a trailer and it just looked really interesting um, and the opportunity to review it came up and so I took it. Um, and I was drawn to it, I think, because one, I sort of like period dramas like that um, and the sort of different take on the sort of traditional uh, gangster drama seemed interesting. Um, and that was what drew me to it just based on that and just looked cool. And so I I started reviewing it. Were you a fan of the movie? Um, I am, but I was I was a little young when I saw it. Um, so I don't think I quite understood it. And I haven't really watched it very much since I, I've, I've read about it. I have a I have a master's degree in like film history and theory. So it comes up now and then because um, it's obviously a very well-known movie. Um so when I first saw it, I, I definitely didn't get it, and I was probably a little too young to watch it. But um, since then, my appreciation for it has has grown, for sure. How about other Cone projects? Do you like their other movies? They're a little hit and miss for me. Um, I, I appreciate what they do and what they're trying to do. I think sometimes um, they can get a little bit... I, I'm They can get a little bit too cerebral and kind of miss the emotional component because you're so removed from what they're doing um so it kind of just depends upon the individual project there's none that i can that are jumping out at me right now that are like oh that's one of my favorite movies but i definitely appreciate what they do and what they're trying to do and um some of the themes they explore um so it really just depends on an individual movie but i yeah, I, I would say that's that about some of They can be pretty deep and dense for sure. And in fact, some of the podcasts we've done, Michelle and I have done, it takes like some really intense notes to try to decipher what the message is and, you know, prepare to talk about it and figure out what the meaning is. It's not just watching and letting it wash over you. Yeah, and I actually think that that's actually, I mean, it can be dense and like you said, and, it, and you can miss a lot. Um, and I don't necessarily think if you're, if it's not your thing, the it's necessarily something that you enjoy if that's not your thing as far as like just sitting back and watching a story. Um, but what I do like about those kinds of really um, intricate types of storytelling with all that kind of detail is that 
everybody sort of takes something different away from it and you can watch the same story and have a completely different reaction yourself if on multiple viewings or just in talking about it with friends and 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 that's a very cool thing even if i don't always enjoy a story regardless of who it is i like to be able to have something to say about it and that's that that's always fun even if it's not something like i'm in love with just being able to take something apart is always going to be interesting yeah and those usually make the best podcasts too the kind of the friends around the water cooler talking about something they all like and just sharing their thoughts about it yeah you know i will also just add like i've had sort of mixed feelings about the season you know it's had its ups and downs um but i've always had something to say which in my reviews which even with shows that i've loved um isn't always the case you know like sometimes you're really stretching for like what to contribute to this conversation um and so even episodes where i wasn't like super invested this season i've always had some something to think about something to say um which i think is you know a testament to their storytelling craft. Yeah, it, it really invites commentary. It invites, it, it stimulates the thought process. It's really interesting yeah. that way. Okay. Um, what we do in the podcast is Michelle usually recaps the scenes and then we just jump in and on our thoughts and our takes for the meaning of each character or meaning behind each scene. So we can follow a sim- similar format if that's cool with you. Works for me. Just muscle your way in if you have something to say. Um, I prompted you with a couple questions. Michelle and I never talk about any episodes beforehand, but I thought I'd at least try to prime the pump a little bit here with our first podcast with you. Mm -hmm. So I asked you about the color themes of the season and the Wizard of Oz and, you know, something about Orietta. Did you give that some thought? I did. Um, And it was actually really helpful to kind of think about this episode on its own terms and and also as part of a larger story. So it it was helpful to kind of get my my juice is flowing. So did you have any thoughts about the, there seems to be a prominence of red and green colors all through this season. Yeah. You know, and it's something I hadn't thought about too deeply before you prompted me. And I, I think this episode, I'd have to go back and watch to be sure, but I think this episode was probably even more apparent of that sort of color, um, scheme. Um, I had kind of two thoughts. One is not so much about the, actual colors but just the way they're sort of um like those sort of bright not clashing colors but they kind of evoke in 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 the sort of setting um not so much in the lighting but like when you see it in the background on the set or in people's costumes there's a little bit of like an americana feeling to it which i think is important because i think ultimately the what they're trying to to, to tell is an American story and um, one that's a little bit like subversion of the American story uh, or, or of American idealism. It's a, it's a quite cynical story. Um, and so that was like my f- initial thoughts, but it, it's also, they're also kind of conflicting in their sort of meaning and in, you know, like red is a really volatile kind of bright, passionate color. And then you have it, contrasted with green which is like harmony or or just like more peaceful kind of stable kind of color and that's a theme that i've seen throughout the season is this sort of contrast between 
the status quo in this sort of cycle, the way that the violence has kind of become cyclical. It's just like, this is how things go. This is how you play this game. And these sort of um, infusions of randomness and violence and emotion. And so like it kind of, it, to me, was an extension of those sort of conflicting themes and, and that sort of tension between those two poles in the in the season so like green 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 red red's like like a shootout or something or something right. more violent yeah it's yeah, interesting yeah exactly um and it, it's actually interesting i, I was watching re-watching the episode uh this morning just to kind of refresh and i did notice a lot of the red was used for the for Josto and the fadadas and um which is interesting because they're the existing power structure, right? You would think they'd be the ones that would be more looking to keep things stable. Um, and the sort of up and comers, the cannons more often, at least in this episode were lit in greens, which is, you would think being the ones trying to like kind of overthrow an existing power, um, and kind of usurp that, um, space, they'd be the more volatile color, but they're the more often shown in green, which I just thought was an interesting sort of twist. Do you think either family has a, has a view of themselves as being ahead in this war? I think that... I think that they both know that at different times that they're, like, sort of up against it. Um, but I feel like Josto in particular... Um, is just really cocky and really arrogant. And I think it blinds him um, to, to sort of, it's maybe it's even just a sense of entitlement. Um, and so I don't think he ever really contemplates that he's going to lose um, mm -hmm. or, or anything like that. Whereas with uh, Loy, I do think he actually, especially towards the end of this episode before his deal with, Orietta, uh, sorry, with sorry with Etherita. Um, I think he really did think he was going to lose, and I think the, you know, thinking he lost his son, um, probably compounded that. But yeah, I just don't think Jost was capable of having that kind of humility to even entertain that idea. Yeah, and, and Loy even called himself the underdog in the mm -hmm. latter part of this episode. I yeah. think I think they've each been ahead, but we know more than they do. As right. the audience, you know, but I think they've each been ahead at different points in this season. And I, I, I would guess the audience mostly would guess the Italians are kind of ahead at this point. But I'm wondering if they really know it. You know, they're calling in all this help and they have their own internal problems that not everybody in the in the in the Cannon family knows about. But I would I would call them as being ahead just as an audience member. Yeah, and I think that was the point of that opening sequence. Um part of the point i mean the other part was to show that it was a response to the you know the attack on their family but i think the way they shot it um with the soundtrack and the sort of montage style and just the sort of uh, to use the word i just used for justice that sort of cocky feel to the whole sequence even if you know um they weren't talking and like seeing all of the bodies at the funeral home I think that was meant to let us know that that they are winning um, and set us up for the episode and also maybe to let us know that they think they're winning now. Um, I'm not sure because of New York if they feel a little bit of pressure, 
Um, but I do think they're in a space at least until at the end, maybe after um, what's the brother's name, Gitino. Gaetano, yeah. Yeah, at least until he dies, I think he, they're feeling a little bit invincible. Could be, yeah. So, uh, so we talked about the red and the green, and then that kind of leads to the whole Wizard of Oz. Have you been, have you been trying to match up the Wizard of Oz to the things and people and events in this season? I mean, the green, the Emerald City is, you know, the, that's right. where they go in the Wizard of Oz. Right, and the green is also, you know, the Wicked Witch, right? Um, oh yeah. Although and I don't the know. ruby slippers. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I didn't think about the ruby slippers, which just is interesting because it makes it clear that it's the movie, not the book. Because I think in the book they were silver. Um, yeah, and that I think also ties into this idea of sort of subverting idealism. Like I, I hadn't really been thinking about the Wizard of Oz until. Um, episode nine like not a lot I, I don't tend to look too much into fan theories while I'm writing my reviews um, but um, with East West it was pretty I mean it was obvious that they were going for the Wizard of Oz so it started having me think a little bit more about that um, and I'm going to go back to the last episode just really quickly because it kind of adds to this point but there's a quote in the beginning of East-West, uh, the Bertrand Retru Russell quote, um, I don't remember exactly what the words are, but it's about being a, a victim or a criminal or something like that. And that's a sort of deeply cynical idea, right? That there's no other thing to be, but either be, either get or be gotten, essentially. Um, and the Wizard of Oz is just not that. The Wizard of Oz is sentimentality and optimism and idealism and kindness and all of these things that have gotten people killed in the show um and so i think in some ways by using the wizard of oz the homage to the wizard of oz it's again subverting this idea of idealism and this idea of you know the american dream and and sort of optimism that kind of infuse our infuses our American kind of history and, and story of ourselves so that was like the big sort of general theme um, I also wrote in my review that um, Orietta was definitely was definitely getting a Miss Gulch not so much w Wicked Witch vibe but a Miss Gulch vibe on her scene on the porch with the Lemuel and um, Ethelreda Mm -hmm. So like, it's definitely there. What about, so then we, we, and the other third question I prompted from you for getting us started was, what, do you think Orietta is a real human or is she paranormal or above or below? Oh, I definitely so, think she's a real human. Um, she, she probably, like Josto, maybe that's why they're drawn to each other, I think has a, a sort of more inflated idea of herself starting off um but i definitely think she's human she makes just so many human mistakes and um you know even just focusing in on Ethelreda instead of trying to figure out how to get to dr harvard that's such a emotional decision it's such a dumb decision mm -hmm. um 
and like her fear when she gets back to the to the apartment um i think she thinks she's smarter than she actually maybe is um but she's definitely human at least that's what i think yeah michelle and i talked a little bit about that like a like a supernatural being wouldn't be worried that the police might catch them and you know she has all these sexual proclivities that seem very human that um, another being may not have and um but she's she does some really quirky crazy stuff like her walk is very weird and like even this episode she got she got either in or out of that house with a scream without waking anybody else up so we'll we'll cross that scene and we can talk a bit a little bit about it when we get to it um Sarah, do you know anything about the show's production timing and the delays maybe that happened due to COVID? Do you know anything about the ins and outs of the technicalities behind that? Um, not for this show. I, I don't know much beyond like who's, you know, I've looked up a few of the directors and obviously I know, you know, the showrunner and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I haven't really followed because, like I said, it wasn't really on my radar before the trailer started coming out. Okay. Some people are critical that the show is too busy with too many characters, too many plot lines. And um, I heard a great analogy. I think it was on, there's another podca- podcast called Fargo Talks Fargo, which I really <laughs> like listening to. They're kind of a, a competitive podcast to us, but I wouldn't even call it competitive. They're just another, they're just a really good podcast that I, that I enjoy. And I think it was them when they said that, um, they made the analogy of in the movie Six Degrees of Separation, they were talking about how first grade art is like blocky and third grade art is camouflage. It's all kind of crappy kids, you know, just slopping paint on paper. But mm-hmm. second grade art is Matisse. And it's and it's really good art because it's the teacher in second grade knows how to take the art drawing away from them at the right point. And so the the analogy they were making was that maybe Noah Hawley had too much time in these three years. He had to build up all these different ideas and thoughts and scene creation and all that, that maybe he just threw too much into this season. Yeah, I would actually agree. That's one of, been one of my big... I don't know that I've put it in those words as far as, like, just too busy, but it's definitely um, a critique I've had is that there's just too many loose ends and they're not tying it together and I can definitely see that being a the case of just like having too many ideas and not you know there's the the term um there's the phrase you know for writers like you have to kill your babies um and not being able to do that you know like you could probably have withstood a couple storylines being maybe taken out or or reduced um to spend time because I like I think like Ethel Rita is a really good example she's such an interesting character to me but I don't feel like I know her very well and I don't feel like she's had much of a chance to go on a character journey like I, she hasn't changed much between the first episode and the last episode um and I want I want to know more about her there's like so many characters that I want to know more about and there's just not enough time to do it in um, so I would definitely, I think that's a good, fair criticism. Do you the, think, are you confident that they're, that he's going to pull it in for a nice landing? I yeah. mean, satisfactory, if not nice. Yeah. I did, I also did write about this in my review a little bit this week. Um, 
I don't, I think it's possible because there's a lot of really interesting threads out there that are like just ready to be turned into something cool. Um, you know, Satchel, uh, wherever he's going. I mean, I, I had assumed he was going home just cause like, where else is he going to go? But who knows? Um, even Loy's wife, um, and you know, the stuff with Orietta, there's all these interesting things bringing it back to Donatella's death, but I don't, that's a really tough ask cause there's just so much to do in an hour. And I would also say there's a few stories that's just too late. Um, you know, like, because the character's dead. Uh, so like, well, Josto and his brother, like, that's a perfect example. Like, okay, he's just randomly, abruptly dead now, Giatino, and um, they had just sort of started telling that story. Or, or even Rabbi, like, I kind of understood why he needed to die, but at the same time, as just somebody who watched it, like, well, that's that's kind of a letdown for his character. Um, so, like, stories like that, there's a few instances that it's a little too late and it's going to be a tough ask, but it's possible. It's possible. It's very Cohen-esque, though, that, that yeah. whatever happened to Gaetano. Um, yeah. So, um, so the first scene is the gangster violence in the news clippings, and we find out it's what between January and April of 1951 by the news newspaper headlines and um they find all all the bodies find their way to the smutty funeral home and we see it's like 27 dead um and then the um i just have to say that is just such a cool like one thing i've loved about the whole season is just like these moments of really cool filmmaking and that was one of them like that whole opening sequence was a perfect example of how to like do exposition in a really interesting and cool way. Um, so, and I hadn't even thought about how many months had gone by and what that must feel like to, to Loy and the, to the city to have that much death coming at them for that many months. Um, it's just, it, as you said, it, I realized how many months they had been just unleashing this violence. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to add like that is one of the, my favorite sequences of the episode for sure. Yeah, now they don't. Now that Lloyd's gang owns the mortuary, they don't just like, oh, Johnny got shot, send him to the Undertaker. Like, they right. are the Undertaker. They have to see almost the process of what happens when you take care of a body. Yeah. It's way more intimate to see your friend being embalmed or whatever. Right. Well, in that scene, that shot within that sequence of them at the mortuary, kind of with all the bodies, I think was a really effective scene to kind of just again underscore the violence and underscore the pressure on the smutneys mm-hmm. um which i don't think we've necessarily we've gotten bits and pieces but we haven't like really seen because the those characters uh a little bit uh to brow the mom but the dad for sure like he, he doesn't really have a huge like emotional range that he shows um but I think that scene was really effective. Yeah, that, the Smutties had a home run hitter in their lineup that she's going to really stand tall in this episode. I think she really she really shows up. Like she had she's shown up before in other episodes, but she really shines in this one. Yeah. Um, so we see Weff flips and goes, you know, tells the cops how to get right into the Fada's headquarters, and they just go in and take them into custody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Loy at the hotel. He's moved from his home to the Gadfly Hotel, and he's talking with his wife, Buell. 
and then we hit the credits and they're they're talking about happy sarah happy was a bit of a disappointment for me they named this episode happy he seemed like this big crime heavy hitter and i don't know he's just he seems like first of all he's a bit of a bastard the way Mm -hmm. he just flips on them but he just seemed unimpressive to me as a gangster well, wasn't his crime like cattle wrestling? Yeah, he's a he's a he's a country boy. Yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely see that. I, I, he was intriguing to me, like as a, as far as like style and like look and feel of a character goes. But I think you're right; there wasn't much there, at least for this episode. Um, but I guess the reason they named him they named the episode after him is because ultimately his betrayal is going to be a pivotal sort of point in this sort of conflict. But yeah, he, he wasn't, he definitely didn't stand out the way you would think a character who they've been talking about all season would normally stand out. He's the, he's the, um, um, name of the his name and the name of the episode but there's also you know i would say maybe otis died happy when mm. he went out so maybe that they have a double meaning for the title could of the show could be it's a good point i hadn't thought about that <clears throat> so buell's kind of the viper in the voice of reason between these male egos this happy and and lloyd's talking about what they want to plan to do she keeps it all on track and uh she reminds happy that her mama and his mama were close like sisters and um, Lloyd just needs a little help and that, uh, if, if you don't help us, she tells him, if you don't help us, they're coming after you right after they string us up. So it makes sense for you to jump in and help us. Yeah. What have you thought about her character? I'm curious what you thought about her character. Um, I, she was such a, like a non-entity for like so much of the season. And then in like the last two, well, not the last episode episode, but the one before, um, she's really kind of become this presence that I'm interested in and one of the more interesting characters uh, that I wish I had seen more of or gotten to know better. Um, because she's just, there's just so much anger, righteously so. And, but just, just her whole vibe, but also like her place in the family. Um, so I'm just curious if you, if you have had similar kind of like, feelings about like having her kind of come into her own at the end of the at the end of the season yeah i think i think she's really came to life she has come to life because of the, the their interpretation that satchel was killed by these people yeah so she was kind of going along with the crime deal Lloyd's crime endeavors and all that because she was kind of living the good life but now that satchel was apparently murdered by this other family she's a like i called her a viper she's Mm -hmm. she wants revenge she wants some blood for this and then they can settle the business end of it after they take take care of uh, satchel's revenge do you think she'll stay loyal to loy yeah i don't see any reason why she wouldn't i don't see any like logical narrative reason why she wouldn't other than if she, if she hasn't already, because I mean, obviously like your first thought when she finds out about Satchel dying is, Oh, she's going to be pissed off at Loy. Um, but there was just some, like, there was just something about the tension that she had. Like even when she was like, um, cutting his hair, it felt vaguely threatening to me. And so like, I can't see why she would turn on him, but there's something that feels like it's going to snap there. And I'm not sure if it won't, maybe not a, a full, like, 
betrayal, but something I feel like there's a shoe to drop there. To what end, though? Like, what what would be her motivation? I don't know. Like, as I said, like, narratively, I don't, I can't see where it would go. And maybe it's not Loy that she it snaps at. Maybe it ends up being, you know, Josto or whoever. Or if, if Satchel comes back, maybe she 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 protects him or it changes the situation for her. I don't really know. But I feel like they're building up that tension for a reason. And I, I can't. I, I, but I can't quite see where it's going. That's interesting. I guess we're going to find out in the next hour of the show and we'll see how it see how it ends up do you um, think satchel will come back or do you think he's just going to keep on his i don't think journey? they'll i don't think they'll see satchel again i don't think the the canon family will know satchel mm-hmm. i think satchel had his birthday and his birthday is mike milligan you know mike milligan's birthday was that 10 year old satchel interesting um, the next scene is Weff getting congratulations by his police buddy for buddies for hurting up the Fadas. And this guy Weff, man, he's an interesting character too. He used to have access to everyone, and now he faces potential harm and wrath from everyone because he's kind of double-crossed all these different factions. And Josto immediately is one of these people threatening him by phone, and he of course throws his childish fit and counts and slams the phone several times into the cradle of the phone. Um, but we see Joe Bulo and um, Ibal having mm-hmm. a meeting. And Joe Bulo ends up being the boss of Mike Milligan in season two, later on in the 70s. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I did look that up a little bit. Um, again, I haven't watched the seasons. So I didn't know Mike Milligan before starting the season. But I, I and I, again, I don't do deep dives into the fan theories when I'm reviewing a show. Um but I saw that. I think I actually heard it. I listened to one of your podcasts to kind of get a when you when you reached out to me to kind of get a sense of what the show was like, um, which actually makes me wonder if Satchel maybe the canons don't see him, but if he does make another appearance or like if we're going to see them getting connected up, um, maybe as a maybe as an older Satchel. Maybe I mean I don't really know how old he was when he met. Um, when they met, like so, like I don't know, but something. If you're gonna get some sort of payoff there, or if it's just gonna stay a, the- a fan theory. So the plot, the plot of this meeting is essentially they need to replace Loy with somebody weak who thinks he's strong, and that is gonna be this Leon guy. Um, yeah. And they also seal Weff's fate here too. That like Josto says nobody turns their back on us and lives. So that's kind of the that's kind of it for Weff coming up. Um, so we see Satchel and his little rabbit walking along stealing milks. Satchel is so unlike Mike Milligan when he's this this really sweet faced little eight to ten year old, you know, whatever whatever age he is. I think he's ten, mm-hmm. but he's just such a sweet little boy. And then if you look, there's on YouTube you can look up like Mike Milligan's best scenes or most compelling scenes, and he's just a bastard. He's super smart, super sharp witted, and um, but he's cruel. He's cruel as hell to people. And it's hard to see Satchel becoming this guy, but I guess from his origin story, you could you could connect it all up. Yeah, I mean, it is a little heartbreaking, right? To um, sorry, that's my cat. Um, uh, it is heartbreaking. Like he's this 
sweet little kid and you know as sort of satisfying as it is to see him stand up to those dudes in the truck it is a sort of loss of innocence and and again that's might tie back to the wizard of oz sort of theme um but if the show is going to end as cynically as it's been all as cynical as it's been all all season that makes sense that he would turn into a bastard um, that the sort of cycle of violence and and inhumanity uh, continues. It's it's not a happy thing. It's not necessarily you know it's not a heartwarming thing. And you kind of want him to be the one that brings some humanity back to the situation. But it makes sense for the tone of the show. Yeah, it's the story of America, right? That you survive at all costs. Your yeah. situation isn't always rosy to start, and that's certainly Satchel's situation. Yeah, um, exactly. I made the analogy in one of our podcasts with Michelle that the, you know, Don Andolini, or whatever Vito Andolini, Don Corleone was like the same. He was eleven years old or ten years old when he came into Ellis Island, and he was super weak and sickly, and he became this huge, powerful person in the crime world yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a familiar and i don't i don't use the word trope uh sort of as a a knock like i don't don't think tropes are inherently bad um but it is a sort of familiar trope of like sort of one of the many immigrant stories um that get told um not that satchel's an immigrant but um this these ideas of like wanting to take on the world and make something of yourself and sort of just getting beaten down um, and losing yourself bit by bit in your pursuit of the American dream. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a really familiar gangster trope for sure. It going back to like the thirties and definitely in the Godfather, right? Uh, Michael's not an immigrant either, but the sort of the gangster story where he starts off as sort of a, all-american war hero um by the end he's he's kind of lost his soul um so i I, yeah i do think that there is a sort of indictment of of the american dream this whole season and sort of sort of making it out to be a lie um at least for certain groups yeah a lie that lets them that that a lie that also leads to a lot of this violence because you're told that you should be able to do these things because that you know that's what Americans do they're independent they pick themselves up by their bootstraps and they go forward um, but when you don't have options you take... seems like it's a comment on human nature like you may not yeah. start with those plans to become the dawn of you know organized crime in New York or Kansas City or something but your circumstances lead you that way and you might because you're human might you know you might reach this drunkenness of power like it's corruption mm-hmm. you know you get a little taste of it and then you find yourself seeking it more and more which i think also makes um Otis um an interesting character because i don't think he he definitely had the he's origin story of like you know a war hero and all that but um he was not he never got the feeling that he was looking for like he he didn't lose himself in that way like i don't know exactly why he ended up where he ended up 
you know, like what it was he was searching for when he hooked up with Josto and, and the Fadadas. But, um, you know, he isn't interesting in that way because I don't think he's quite that sort of I'm going to go make my mark hero that we see that gets sort of corrupted. Yeah, you're no. right. They never they never showed us why he needed extra money and he had to go like, you know, be a be a insider for the Italians or the Canons or what he needed that extra income or whatever that corrupted. It's almost like he gave up after his wife died and he just didn't I I don't know, but he never he never seemed like I don't know, he never seemed to have ambition about anything. But we don't know if that's how it started. Yeah, he just got pushed by the winds of chance to yeah. whatever ha- ha- ends up happening to him. So we learn about this snowman now. So what do you think about all that, that he's this this sea captain who had Ethelreda's great-great-grandfather on his ship, and while the ship was sinking, his grand, great-great, her great-great-grandfather had the chance to take this guy out. He choked him to death and became kind of uh, haunted by this snowman sea captain i don't know yet i was really glad to get more information um i mean there's always an appeal of the sort of mysterious ghost or mysterious supernatural that you don't quite understand but i was glad we got some more context and confirmations about like what they know and what they don't um but i'm not really sure what to make of it yet i do i wonder a little bit like they feel cursed by him and it's clearly an unwelcomed presence, but he also seems to be protecting them somehow. And I don't know why, and it feels a little perverse almost that their protector would be, you know, a slave trader. So I'm not really sure that that's what it is, but he does seem to show up and save their lives. Like he saved Ethelreda. You could argue that he saved Zelmir. Um, so I'm not really sure. There's like a lot that I want to know about that story. And I, I don't, either it's going to be a really big part of the last episode or we're, where it's just going to be one of those mysteries we never really get the answer to. You think it could almost be like their mind to take out. I don't want you stepping in and getting the pleasure of killing her. She's mine to take out. She's my sunshine to shadow. Yeah, this could be. I would say not necessarily to take out. Like I don't think he's, he's looking to harm them or he or could harm them maybe he can't or he would have already it's been you know generations um he could also be cursed it's possible that he's the one that's actually cursed Mm -hmm. um or yeah that could be it maybe he like this is i i'm gonna haunt these people i'm gonna continue to like exact my revenge for generations and generations um that's possible but Whatever it is, he's not harming them. Like, I don't know what it is other than freaking them out and scaring them. Like, he's not really doing anything to them. I understand why that would be something they they want to rid themselves of, especially given its its history. I think there are probably smarter people than me who might have some more sort of cultural, historical kind of political reading that would probably be really interesting um given his origin story um but i'm not sure yet it's interesting that you say he might be the one cursed because that that kind of happened in season three with numbers and wrench Mm. whichever one of them 
survived and helped Nikki in season three. He was, and then he ended up he ended up kind of under in trial in that bowling alley meeting with the the Paul the Wanderer the Wandering Jew. Um, he was turn he turned good and he was actually essentially a criminal and maybe he had a redemption story too. Maybe that's part of the theme of this snowman that he had done some awful things in his life and he had to go through the next hundred years to, you know, absolve his sins and help people. Maybe that's his story. I don't know if we'll get an answer. Um, There's a lot to do in the season finale, so we'll have to see. I hope we do. It's one of the stories I kind of want more. and I'd rather not leave completely a mystery. There's some stories like, okay, we're not going to get an answer. That's how it's going to be. But, um that's one that I kind of do hope we get more clarity on. Mm-hmm. So next Orietta shows up with her stilted walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she wants her ring back and she's going to call the cops. And Ethelreda says she knows all the secrets and just kind of fades her. Like, I'm not worried about you. I know, you know, I know a lot about you. And um, it kind of leaves with the scene ends with Orietta saying, what does it feel like to be so sure you're right? But nobody cares. See you in your dreams, which is, that's kind of, that's kind of a paranormal-ish witchy thing to say to somebody right yeah it's also i think relevant to both the wizard of oz theme um if she is miss gulch but also relevant to conversations right now about you know sort of police brutality and things like that um because that's i think how it feels like there's so much evidence or whatever you, you you see but it just feels like for so long you've had these stories where nobody believed um anything that that the police contradict like everybody automatically believed the police or automatically believed you know a history not just in police but you know, automatically believed the sort of white people the white woman the white um right. they wouldn't lie <laughs> Right, exactly. And like you just you're never given the benefit of the doubt, never given equal footing. Um, so I think that was actually one of the more relevant to like modern times and outside of the con- not just modern times history um, statements of the episode. But I do also think like that's also what happened to Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, it's not that her aunt and uncle didn't believe her per se, but she didn't have any power. You know, the, yeah. this, the position of this. I think Miss Gulch was a teacher. I don't remember what her job was, but the position of this woman in the society left Dorothy powerless. Um, Ethelreda is definitely not powerless, um, which I think again is a twist. If if it is a Wizard of Oz analogy, um, and probably a really cool one. Yeah, and they did kind of laugh at Dorothy when she came back and woke up. That she was like, "You were there, and you were there too," and they're like laughing, like, "Oh, you silly little girl." Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, next we see Happy and Leon go to the Thottas and make the kind of the same deal that Loy wanted them to make with him. And like we said, Jostin wants to just take out Loy and put Leon in there, and he'll they'll get re- territory and business in return for that. And then there's a couple quick scenes with just like this crazy father-in-law guy, this mayoral candidate who's an alderman, has come in to cancel the wedding with Josto and. Oh, I can't even remember the woman's name, but his daughter. Yeah. And it looks like he's still just an alderman, so maybe he's not been elected yet, or he's not going to be elected mayor. Yeah, you know, 
I understand why that storyline is in there. You know, they want to establish that the Fadadas the have this sort of systemic control and corruption within American institutions. Um, I, I understand that, but this, I've been sort of over underwhelmed by it all. Like, like I don't remember the fiance's name either. Um, and it felt a little like unnecessary. Um, but as far as the scene goes, my, my take was he probably, the election probably hasn't happened yet. And now Josto is a, a liability, um, rather than an asset, whether or not he's able, you know, as you know, that's a thing, politician, you know, classic, you know, story of political story of like making these deals with the devil and then being stuck with them. So whether he can actually, whether he would actually be able to like break his deal with Josto, I, I don't actually know that he could. Um, he might think he can because he probably doesn't realize what he's gotten himself in, quite what he's gotten himself into until it's too late. Although now everything's changed with Giatino dying and the ring and all of that. So like it might not even matter. But yeah, I haven't loved that story. Next, we see Satchel defending himself from the rednecks and the whole "this is now my world" speech. So yeah. it's a pretty pretty bold move for Satchel to bold step for him to move up into. And I also noticed Sarah that he had when he when he pulled that gun out, he pulled it out with his left hand. And I mm -hmm. was wondering if that was a clue that you know left hand. There's so many fewer left-handed people than right-handed people. I was wondering if Mike Milligan was left-handed. If anybody's yep. still wondering if this is like the pre-story to Mike Milligan, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the answer, um, but that would be a good clue if he is in fact, if Mike Milligan is in fact left-handed. The only thing I want to add about that scene, I loved that scene. Like, there was a lot of scenes in this episode that I really loved, and I, I, I think you know, I was a little frustrated that they felt a little. Uh, not tied together a little incoherent but individual scenes that i really loved and this was one of them um it was a really good scene for satchel but it was also just beautifully filmed like the green and the sky and just the whole thing it was one of the just a really beautifully filmed um scene that i really loved and he's another character like i understand why he had to kind of be a minor character through most of it but he's turning out to be a lot more interesting than initially you know than we initially thought a lot more interesting than some of the characters I thought were going to be interesting at the beginning of the uh, season. So Otis now is hearing voices as he, wherever he is. He's riding around in the car with this, I guess this this group of bodyguard cops that now drive him around when he goes back home. And there's a stakeout at his house with Josto and Gaetano. And um, while staking out the house, Gaetano shares his boyhood secrets with Josta, like what happened to him and his kind of his origin story. And yeah. it turns out some guy named Groucho had a pretty daughter named Adelina, and Gaetano fell in love at age 11 and followed her every day home from school. And the father got mad and started choking him. And one day he pushed him into some glass, broken glass. So Gaetano picks up the glass and stabs Groucho and kills him. And this is why he was sent back to Sardinia, or I guess a, an island near, I think he said Sardinia. It's, it's like an island next to Sicily, west of Sicily. 
And it's very much like The Godfather, right, where Michael has to go back and get kind of hidden away for a while while uh, he they take care of the cop and the, or till it cools off in The Godfather. Yeah. Um, I have not... I found both Josto and Guillotino more interesting in this episode than I have in past episodes. Um, I don't know if you've how you felt about their dynamic. Um, I kind of liked them as a team. So I was a little bit disappointed that it, we won't see more of that, but um, it was the most interesting I found, you know, through the whole episode, not just the scene um, all season. They, they haven't had, they had a little bit more depth, I guess. And I don't know, maybe, he wasn't meant to have depth and that's why he was just meant to be kind of a, a brute force kind of character. Um, but I did really, I didn't, not necessarily that scene of them, that scene was fine of them talking in the car, but I did like their scenes together a lot more this episode than I have. I don't know if you felt the same way or if you, you found them more, (laughs) them more interesting as allies than as like scabbling brothers fighting over every little thing yeah i I mean in charge no i should be in charge right and i mean i know why they had to start as adversaries i don't think they necessarily would have been interesting if they had automatically started as allies but maybe a little bit sooner in the season because i just it was more interesting to me it was more i mean the the adversary thing is something we've seen in mob stories over and over and over again and um so it didn't really bring much for me. Um, but seeing them as allies, like seeing it just made it, well, it made Josto more fun. Um, cause he's been a little bit unpleasant for a lot of these episodes for me. Um, and it just, I don't know. There was just, it just, they brought something out of each other. And I think the actors too, they brought something out of each other in this episode that I hadn't seen until, until they were allies. Yeah, I agree. They were much more interesting when they were friendly with each other. And Gaetano was a little bit of a voice of reason, and he kind of hears a word that he's he's got his back to the scene at the bar, and he hears a word. He's like, "What is? What does that mean?" Yeah. And he's like, "Is that a bad? That sounds bad. Is that a bad thing? Because if it's a bad thing, somebody's going to get punched in the mouth." The whole like, dynamic in that scene with them was kind of cool. Like, yeah, what you're talking about, where he's like kind of just eavesdropping, and they're just having this kind of casual conversation. And I just I really liked. Um, when he when he punches the alderman and he's like you can't do that and just like well it looks like i looks like he can like mm-hmm. it was just like this perfect like really good line delivery too but like it was just such a cool dynamic like i wish i had seen more of that um maybe even as they were rivals like more banter i guess but um mm-hmm. yeah it definitely changed how i was feeling about them so Otis gets home to all the destruction that's been caused by, I guess, Joe Bul- Bulo. Joe Bulo has destroyed the Hummels, which I thought of Munchkins when I saw those, all those broken, and not even before they were, before they were broken, they seemed like kind of Munchkins. Mm-hmm. Um, and the picture of his wife with the eyes burned out or cut out, and he feels distress when he's attacked, but then he hears his lover's voice and it kind of gives him peace. And I called Gaetano shooting him in my notes here peacefully. Gaetano kills him peacefully. He's, he's killed pretty quickly, so he probably doesn't really suffer. 
and um, he just kind of smiles when it when it's all yeah. over. Like he went to where his lover is now, and he's not he's out of this messy world and in some better place. Yeah, I. It was a very you're right. It was a peaceful scene. He clearly found some peace. It was also really sad, like you know, seeing his little figurines destroyed. Like he's not been a character that I've been super invested in this season, but it was still just very sad. Um, but you're right. He did find some peace and I, um, really did appreciate. So, um, earlier in the season, they had a bluegrass artist, um, Ola Bell Reed. Um, they played her song when he was having flashbacks of his wife and in his house. Um, and that's the song she's singing in his memory. Mm. Um, and I really thought that that was really an effective way to kind of in an efficiently effective way. They didn't need to do a lot of overwrought emotional kind of dialogue or they didn't need to do a lot. And they were able to kind of find that emotional note that made the scene very effective um, and very poignant um, in a way that I don't think we've seen that much this season. Like there's been a few other really poignant scenes, but that was probably the softest death we've seen for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you think there were any lessons from from Noah Hawley for us in regard to Wef? Like, what what role, what lesson did he teach us in this show? What was was the point of having him in the show? I don't know if this is right, but my my sort of inclination was there's a, a lot of the themes in this season have been about control, and you know um, he has obviously you know some sort of obsessive compulsive. I'm not a you know psychologist. Uh, so I don't want to misdiagnose, but there's something right where he needs to feel the sense of control. Um, and I think in those last moments, he let go of that need. And like, cause that control had been sort of torturing him that need to have order and control had been torturing him all season. And just this burden that he, he carried, he let go of that. And just like that, that as much as being, reunited with his wife I think was what brought him peace mm-hmm. he just l- l- released this burden from his shoulders and just at least in the last few seconds of his life he didn't he didn't die with that sort of anxiety um, and stress of feeling out of control mm-hmm. yeah I, I told Michelle and a few of our last few podcasts that this was this you could watch this show and just be entertained by it if you didn't have to connect everything together to make that part of your successful entertainment, this mm-hmm. is just a super interesting show to watch. Watch the photography, the cinematography, and just the dialogue is great. The characters are really interesting. It's sometimes funny. It's sometimes kind of scary. But, the you know, tying it all together, like, Weff was totally interesting. I just can't really figure out what he meant to the story and what Noah Hall yeah. was trying to tell us with Weff in this greater story 100 percent agree like and that's been my biggest complaint about the season um is that they just i can't find the center um but individually the episodes are entertaining and the scenes are well done and some of the early episodes um i even specifically like pulled you know pointed out the director and like how i think it was i don't remember her name right now i'm blanking um how well she create crafted these scenes um but yeah i don't i don't know either like i know what his story might mean but i don't know what it has to say beyond 
the whole season has been about people trying to control fate and trying to control the world mm-hmm. and not being able to. But I don't know that he brought much beyond that to the larger story. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to see this happening over these three years. Like they put the show together, they have all this time, and then they get interrupted by COVID and they can't mm-hmm. do maybe some of the things they want to do. So they have to stitch and restitch and they end up with what we got. That's fair. It, it's all good stuff, but it may, maybe it's you know a little not as seamless. It's got seams that we can see. <laughs> well, now I am curious, like what got interrupted and what they weren't able to complete, because that's happened to a lot of shows um, that have had to end early and just haven't been able to finish the story they wanted to tell. So I do sort of now wonder if there were pieces that might have mm-hmm. been missing. Somewhere I read that this episode was after COVID. It was filmed after COVID, so people were trying to look to see where people, how far apart were people in each scene, mm-hmm. and all that. So I didn't, I didn't go back and rewatch after I read that. But that was that was kind of interesting that this was kind of a COVID in the in the COVID era. Yeah, it makes you wonder. Shot makes you wonder what it was supposed to be. So next, something stealthy sneaks up into the smutty house. Do you think that was Orietta or the snowman that that? tracking shot up the stairs when I watched it I wasn't the first time I wasn't sure but and I'm still maybe not sure but I my instinct says it's Orietta and I I do think they try to make her seem otherworldly um but so that could have been part of it also interesting it was blue um the scene the lighting which is such a soft contrast to the rest of that episode um but I, I don't. Th- I think he's just there. I don't think he would need to find Etherita. I think he would just show up. So I, I think it's Orietta. Yeah, he's in the basement. He's been in the basement before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do kind of think he's already there. Although we've seen him outside the house too. He was in the hotel with Zelmer and um, right. But I think guy. he just a- appears. I don't think he like travels. Huh. So like. When they, when he when they enter the house, it's from presumably from Orietta's perspective, and you see her, you see the perspective sort of move through the house. And I could be wrong, but my guess was that he just sort of appears where he wants to appear, not that he necessarily, you know, has to go from point A to point B and like physical dimensions. Right. Like I don't. It's not something that occurred to me that he would do. Yeah, he showed up in that bathtub kind of magically. He just kind of appeared and stood up. That was, that was such a good scene, though. That was another one of my favorite scenes of the season. Okay, so she's ready to jam this syringe into Ethelreda, but Orietta smells the... She she takes a little sniff. She smells mm-hmm. the seawater or the whatever, the marsh smell of a sea captain smell. And then she knows that he's there. And next we hear a scream, and the next thing we know, she's in her apartment. So where was the scream, Sarah? Did she scream in her head? Did she just get so scared that it she got home and screamed? Because she didn't wake anybody up, it didn't seem like. Yeah, I I mean, when I first watched it, I actually asked that question because I thought it was actually her screaming. But I'm not sure because, like you said, well, maybe she did wake people up and we just didn't see it because they were all standing on the porch when she gets arrested. And I don't know that, and the police were already in her apartment, so I don't know that it was the police that would have woken them up, maybe, but I'm not sure. Um, I also just want to, like, really quickly say, like, 
the acting this season has been very good from everybody. And that was a really impressive scene from, from, I think her name is Jesse Buckley. Is that who mm-hmm. played She did a fantastic job sort of transitioning from this terrifying monster to being terrified by a monster. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know whether she was screaming. I think she was screaming out loud. So she woke up the Smutley family and then ran out the sta- down the stairs and out, and they just kind of said, wow, yeah. that was weird, and then they came out on the sidewalk. And I wasn't sure when I watched it, but as I think about it, I think that's what happened. Yeah, you're right. She's a good actress because she's pretty ominous, and then all of a sudden she gives us an, a great Minnesotan, oh, geez, like, yeah. I, you know, police got me, oh, geez. Can't, like, even get, can't this... get my purse, even. Yeah, I mean, there's been some other scenes where she's just been terrifying, um, especially early on in the season, um, and then just, just switches to this really human kind of fallible woman so seamlessly. Um, and I thought that that scene was just a really good example of her craft. Mm-hmm. Um, even even when she goes to the – when she finds the police, like she doesn't really even miss a beat. And it's just, I don't know, it's, the whole cast has been very, very good. Um, but she's definitely stood out. She's pretty terrifying brushing the crumbs off that Dr. Harvard's lapel. Yeah. Like, so calmly. Like, no, no, That's you're just going to have to pass away nice and calmly. and Let's get your evidence off your collar. Yeah, it was scary, <laughs> but it was also an example of her just being incredibly cocky and arrogant. Like, not waiting until she he had died. Like, she, that's... I think also an example of her humanness. Like it was scary in the moment, but then after when you find out that he's alive, uh, it's like, well, that was dumb to make yourself so visibly seen in his office and then not even make sure he's dead. Um, so it's, it, and maybe that's another example of her skill where she can be terrifying while making these really dumb mistakes. Mm-hmm. So next we have this meeting with Ethel Rita and Loy at the hotel. And she is not to be underestimated, Sarah. She speaks French. She makes this, mm-hmm. this um, a kind of a stand similar to, to Satchel's against the greater foes by just overwhelming Loy with this French. And she has knowledge of this Moorish painting. Mm-hmm. And um, she just really impresses him and gives the deal. She wants the house and the funeral business back. And she doesn't want him to give it back to her. She wants to show him that they've earned it back. Yeah, I, um, I did, I liked, I really liked the end scene and I especially liked once the music started, the soundtrack for this entire episode has been, was great. The soundtrack for the season has been very good as well. Um, I mean, why would you underestimate Athorita? Like she's a very impressive person. Um, and I liked watching him. Tra- I, he he went through a transition too, right? Like he definitely was dismissing her a little when she walked in, and I loved watching him kind of realize that she had something to offer, and and um, basically throw a wrench into the the dynamic. Like uh, you know, she could decide how this ends just by handing over that ring. Um. And I did like that she was, it just, again, showcases how smart she is, that she isn't coming there and how, you know, resilient she is because she's not coming there to to beg. She's not coming there to 
she she's thought this through she's done the math and like it's just such a there's so much poison for somebody her age yeah so michelle cringes when i do this but i did the math did, did it strike you to wonder how like the initial loan to the smutneys was thirty five hundred dollars did you ever wonder like how does that get to sixty two hundred in six months uh, not until you asked. Okay. Well, I just did the math. So it's 10% interest. I'm like, how can that get to 60? That's like twice. It's almost twice. So what happens is, okay, 3,500 the first month, you add 350. That's 3,850. Then you add 10% to 3,850 and you get 4,235. Then you add 10%, 10%, 10%. And after six times you do that, it is, it is in fact 6,200. So you're adding 10% interest on top of the original amount and the new interest and the interest on that from the previous month. So while it sounds like, that's not bad, 10% interest, we need $3,500, but it gets really Mm -hmm. fast. It gets really high. And it is, in fact, after six months, $6,200. Well, I mean, that's like, that's what a loan shark does, right? Like... Be, they don't have they have they have all the cards um so they can charge as much interest as they want because there's no way that you can back out and not like be physically harmed like there's not it's like a it's like a carrot and a and a, mm-hmm. yeah, a stick and a stick not even a carrot really um after the initial you know loan um I also did a math on the it, it, 27 men dead and 8,700 in expenses to the Smutneys is $322 per person for for mortuary services, which seems really low. But that was what that math came out to. I mean, I was going to ask. I don't know about the what it would be in the 1950s, like what what those costs would be. Yeah, or what they got. I mean, what are those guys? Right. What are those twenty-seven people get? They don't get like a nice, full-blown funeral. I'm sure they probably got a box in a field somewhere. So, do you think um, one of the two families is actually going to win, or do you think neither will win? Well, I kind of think we know the answer because if we watch season two, you know that the big Kansas City. Mm. You don't see the Cannon family too much in the future, in the 70s, in season two. You see the Italians, and you see different so factions the, of Italians, but I think that... Do you I, see the Tatas uh, specifically? I Like I said, I haven't watched the previous seasons, well, so I don't know. Joe Bulo, the guy who was talking to mm-hmm. um, Michelle, and I, I make this joke with Michelle that I have to use the autocorrect names, but eBay Violence, Ebal Violente is the consigliere. Mm-hmm. He, he is talking to this guy, Joe Bulow, a young version of Joe Bulow, who becomes the Kansas City boss. So we know that Joe Bulow is the boss 20 years later, kind of leading me to believe that, uh, you know, the Italians have taken kind of control if they're still in charge 20 years from now. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it could be that Josto's group doesn't come you know like that they get excised from the because it does sound like the their mob is like a larger you know with new york and all that kind of stuff does seem like they're part of a larger network um so it might be that they get replaced it's hard for me to imagine josto not paying some kind of a price i mean i guess if the show really is going to go all out cynicism 
maybe that's who does win. Um, but it, it's still hard for me to imagine. Like I want, I would much like my heart wants is Cannon to win, even though he's kind of a bastard sometimes too. He's just a, you know, he's he's at least got some level of humanity and some kind of like cares about his family at the at a minimum. Um, but it's hard for me to see either one of them like actually coming out on top. Yeah. I'm not, you know, it's hard to say any one particular member of either team will win, but I think the team Italians win. <laughs> like, yeah. Justo might get wiped out. He deserves to be wiped out, and he's kind of a dope, so he probably won't have legs for much of a long life in criminal you know, management. Yeah. But um, anyway, all this math leads to the really good acting by Chris Rock. I think Chris Rock's perfect in this role. Some people don't like him. They're like, oh, he's a comedian. He's not really impressive as a gangster. I think he's fabulous as this gangster. And he, she goes through all this math, and he goes, well, this all adds up to who cares? Or something mm -hmm. like he says something similar to that. But she pulls out the priceless part of the deal. The number, you can't attach numbers to this part of the deal, and it's this ring. So it's not really a math play paying us back because these numbers add up. It's a power play, and this ring means some sort of power. And she tells him about Orietta, and the trophy ring was Orietta's little keepsake from Donatello. And that how she describes is what this info will do is to help him win the war, and she hands him the article about Donatello and with the ring on. And so, Sarah, what do you think? What's the magical formula here for making this ring super powerful to Loy? Well, I think, I mean, I think he's going to try and use it to frame Josto. I don't know how exactly. Um, it will be interesting to see if that works or if the truth comes out given Orietta and Josto's relationship. But I, I can't think of any other way that that would win him his war other than implicating you know Josto or, or somebody else within his team because um, yeah. I don't think he has leverage any other way with just the like even if he knows that it's Orietta like I don't know what that would get, get him from the Italians well it certainly would cause strife in the Italian family because mm -hmm. they all know some somehow or they can easily find out that Josto is Orietta's boyfriend or at least was at her house. Um, right. And if if Josto had Orietta the nurse kill Donatello, mm -hmm. and it, that got back to New York with the big shots, she could that could really hurt Josto. And now here's Gaetano with a, his head blown off at the scene of a murder where he and Josto were staking out this victim. Right. And it doesn't, you know, well, how do you describe that? Well, no, really, he tripped and he shot his own head off. Like, come on, man. You killed your brother because you wanted to be in charge. It, it's all that. Right. All these signs have pointed to this Josto before they became buddies, wanting to be in charge. Even even eBay Violence knows this. Yeah, well, and also, like, it would be an... I think... So, like I, I had been saying, like, there's this, like, tension between control and meaning and, like, randomness throughout this entire episode where everybody's trying to, like read people's motives and predict moves and, and find some sort of meaning. But then all of these random things happen and it would, it would actually be fitting for, you know, Josto's undoing. And also because he's just been 
lucking into things, like failing up sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I, I think he's definitely lost, you know, the respect of people in his group. But like, it would be kind of fitting that he's undone by these random events because people so badly want to have some sort of coherent kind of narrative. Yeah. And they want to make some sense out of these things that happen. Like it random things do happen, but people don't like that. So they're going to like create their own narrative around it. And the narrative that makes sense given Josto's, you know, they're, they've been rivals and the situation, you know, like, all of that, the, the fact that he, you know, it's it's unbelievable that he wouldn't know the co- the coincidence of him sleeping with Orietta and having this relationship and her being the one that killed his father. Like, I think that could be a very interesting way to end it, where he's destroyed mm-hmm. just because by all of these random coincidences that have up until now. Um, been breaking his way for the most part um, because people want to put some sort of like clean, put something into sort of a clean box. Yeah. They want a smooth transition to stability. Certainly those, you know, they wanted the brothers to get along. That was the first rule when they came, you know, came back with their edict of what, if we want, if you want help from us, you got to get along. Yeah. Yeah, All right, so next episode, Storia Americana, which I think if you had to s- describe any of these episodes this season, it is kind of the story of America, but I mm-hmm. guess they're going to put a real nice cap on it with that type of a title for the final episode. Um, do you have any predictions for what you think will happen in the last episode? Um, I d- Like I said, I think something's going to happen with Lloyd's wife. I really don't know what it is, but something is going to break. I just... I don't see how you can have that much tension and not have it go anywhere. I could be wrong about that one. Um, I'll be interested to see where Ethelreda ends up at the end of this. Like she just made this really big power move and, and showed herself to be capable of not necessarily ruthless, but just strategic kind of non kind of like non-emotional dealing um, so I'm kind of wondering where she ends up, especially with this sort of budding romance with Lloyd's son. Um, I, w- I think thematically, you know, when we started the season, it was Ethelreda telling the story that we didn't really have any emotional investment in. It was just an interesting story, but we were kind of at a distance. And so it was a little bit more of a, a story of America as opposed to a story of these two families. And so then we, throughout the season, zoom in to this family and like see the detail, meet the characters. So I have a feeling it might end with us then kind of like pulling back out and seeing this larger picture again. Um, I don't know if it'll be framed exactly the same way with Ethelreda sort of concluding it, but I, I think sort of from a format and kind of like an execution storytelling kind of perspective, I have a feeling that's where that might end up um, as opposed to ending it focused on the, the the individual players yeah the happy ending would be the smutneys kind of get their business back and then they mm-hmm. kind of get separated from the whole crime endeavor and yeah Rita has kind of a fade away into normalcy like she's a college professor or ceo or some smart you know executive position but nothing at all to do with crimes or right 
you know, being bewitched by this snowman or Orietta. Yeah, I wonder if she's going to rid herself somehow of the snowman. Let's they never seem to have happy endings, these these Italian okay. or criminal endeavor movies and plots. They always seem to end sad for the main characters. Yeah, I mean, the show is cynical in that, like, it doesn't definitely doesn't reward kindness, Um necessarily it doesn't reward humanity but at the same time you kind of reap what you sow so if you put all of that out there you know uh, if you put all that unhappiness out there it's it's eventually going to come back at you in some shape way or form there's not really a path to actual happiness if that's the life you choose to live um, even if you survive and you stay on top, you're always going to be like looking over your shoulder mm-hmm. or putting your relationships at risk because you can't, um, you, you can't be soft. Um, so I don't think there is a, a plausible way for any of these characters other than maybe the Smutneys. I mean, if you want, you want a happy ending for Satchel, but if the fan, you know, if, if he is Mike Milligan, it's, he's, not necessarily going to get the the happy ending we would want for the kid. Um, But yeah, I don't see a happy ending for anybody. I do hope a few characters survive. I'd like to find out what happens with Thelmeyer. You know, I wasn't super thrilled with how they um, ended her story with Swanee. Um, So I do hope she gets some kind of satisfying ending. And I, I hope that Ibal actually lives. That'd be, he's like the last sympathetic character on the Fadada side. And so I do kind of want him to make it out alive at least. Well, I think Zomir will be back. And I think because Ethelrita asked, you know, where's Zomir going to be okay? Which she asked Dubril. And so I don't think they would, I don't think he'd have her ask that and just not answer it. Right. So we yeah. may find out more about, about her. Yeah. I hope so. This has been great, Sarah. Thanks again for filling in with us. This is um, this is really helpful, and you you gave some great perspective on what you think about this this you know this particular episode. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I don't know about Fargo, but maybe there's a because I don't know I don't know if it's been renewed, but yeah, I'd love to do something again. Great. How do people find you outside of uh, outside of this podcast? Um, well, they can find my reviews at uh, telltaletv.com. Um, we have a lot of really great writers um, that do. I, I, I noticed you rev- you do podcasts for some other shows that I don't review. So um, definitely check out telltaletv.com. And if they want to find me on Twitter, um, my handle is here's the thing 17. All right. Awesome. Here's the thing 17 at. Uh, that's just my Twitter twitter handle oh so at here's the thing 17 yeah sorry at here's the thing 17 all right well great thanks again sarah fields and we'll see everybody again next week on storia americana all right thank you bye sarah bye